chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to look on with somebody. I want to read to you a, a passage that Mark records, an interview with Jesus, beginning at verse 28. Mark says that one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. He heard Jesus and the Pharisees and the other leaders and the Sadducees debating. Now, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's come into Jerusalem, and uh, there's much conversation, uh, much discussion, much debate going on these, uh, this last week in his life, much teaching. And so one of the teachers of the law, one of the scribes come, noticing that Jesus had given them, meaning the Sadducees, a good answer in response to their question, he's going to ask them a question. He says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now remember, the Jews had over 600 commandments that they were required to keep in their law. And so he's saying, which is the most important of all these commandments? Which is the most important? And Jesus' response is the most important one. And he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy and then again from um, the book of Leviticus. He says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these two. Now you remember in another place, Jesus says the whole, all the whole law, all the commandments hang on these two laws. Love God and love your neighbor. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And then Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. And he said to him, he said to the teacher, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now I want to take that last phrase and I want to talk to you about this. Jesus' statement, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And I want to ask you this question. How close is close enough? How close can we get to the kingdom of God? You know, there's a, an old saying, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Right? I mean, close is a good thing in horseshoes, and it can be a good thing in hand grenades, uh, depending on which end you're at with the hand grenade. But we're not, we're not playing horseshoes, and we're not throwing hand grenades. And so we want to ask ourselves, how close is close enough? There's another old saying, and this is, 
a little bit different than the first. Close, but no cigar. Close, but no cigar. So what if you almost scored the touchdown? So what if you almost closed the deal? So what if you almost got the sale? So what if you almost passed the test? I came close. I was up there to bat and, and I almost hit the ball. <laughs> I threw the pass and I almost completed it. I took the test and I almost passed it. I almost closed that deal. Close, but no cigar. No cigar. And on it goes, doesn't it? There are many who are close to the kingdom of God. There are many who are close to the kingdom of God, but close is not enough. Jesus, in his response to this teacher of the law, recognizes the teacher of the law has a grasp on some very, very important truths. He says, you're close. Oh, you're close. But no cigar yet. There are many who are close to committing themselves and committing their lives to Jesus Christ. But as yet, they've not done so. Close is not enough. There are many who are seeking God. Lots and lots of people. I read a survey just recently in, in a journal talking about the, 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 the Gallup poll, the number of people in America who profess to be Christians. Tremendous percentages. Lots of people close. Lots of people close. Lots of people seeking God. Lots of people investigating the Bible. Some of you have come tonight to, on the invitation of a friend or relative to investigate the church, investigate the, the prospect. Maybe church might have something for me. That's not a bad motivation. First time I came to church, I came to church because I was looking for distributors for my Amway business. <laughs> now look what God did to me. A lot of guys come to church looking for girls. A lot of girls come to church looking for guys. If you stick around long enough, something begins to happen to you. God begins to get a hold of your heart. There are people here tonight from all kinds of backgrounds, people with all kinds of past problems and dilemmas and beliefs and all sorts of difficulties with doctrines and teachings and uh, theology, people who are searching in their life for purpose and meaning, something that will last. I talked to a man yesterday, and we were, we were discussing about Finishing well. 
finishing well our life, our ministry, what we're involved in. He said, what do you, what do you want written on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered? What do you want your life to have counted for? So there's lots of people in church for lots of different reasons. Some, again, searching for purpose and meaning. Some even who are contemplating their own mortality. What will happen to me when I die? The older I get, the more interested I am in that subject. I find that to be true in people as they get older. When you're young, you think you're going to live forever. Death is not even concerned for you. But there's people around and people in here tonight that are certainly contemplating their own mortality. What happens when I'm going to die? Well, tonight I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Jesus Christ. Tonight I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Jesus Christ. And I would ask you, if, you, if you're not a Christian yet, if you have some kind of intellectual bias or cultural bias against Jesus, I would ask you just for the next 20 minutes to half hour, set aside that bias the best you're able. Set aside that bias and think with me. Reason with me. And ask yourself if it isn't, if it isn't possible that Jesus may be who he says he is. And as we talk tonight, I, just, I would hope that would be the case, that you would do that. Many, many people in the process of coming to a church, they come to a church to get answers, to find solutions for relational problems, um, personal problems, um, financial problems, spiritual problems. They come to a church to discover truth, to develop relationships. Some even come to a church to get closer to God. But you know, in that process of coming, and as a person continues to come and avail themselves of, of a church and a church environment, many people are getting closer and closer and closer to the kingdom of God. They may not be necessarily so consciously aware of it, but they are getting closer and closer and closer. But I am compelled to tell you that close doesn't count. Just getting close doesn't count. The teacher in Mark 12 that we just read about, he was close because he had attained a certain measure of knowledge about the kingdom. Jesus said, you're close. You've gained this knowledge. You have this understanding. You're close. The kingdom of hand is real close to you. And many people do attain a certain measure of knowledge about God, about the Bible, about religion, about righteousness. There are many, many people who are familiar with Christian terminology, biblical terminology. Uh, they can even identify some biblical verses. They can quote them, sing Christian songs, even have some grasp of biblical doctrine. They can know intellectually that Jesus died for the sins of the world. There are many, many people who have a grasp on some of these factors. 
And all of this is close to the kingdom. It's close to the kingdom. But again, it's still no cigar. Knowledge about the kingdom, the knowledge about Jesus, is not enough. It's not enough just to have knowledge about Jesus or the kingdom of God. There are those who will pride themselves in their own human goodness, their fairness, their reasonableness, their good deeds. They will say, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I'm a good guy. I don't rape, pillage, and plunder. I don't rip people off. I'm a good guy. And especially, you find people like that, when they're hanging around Christians, they find themselves sinning less. They find themselves swearing less. They find themselves uh, snorting less and speeding less. The five, the four S's. I know some friends of mine that I, I play racquetball with and some of them are just heathens. Unbelievers. And they know I'm a pastor and they know I'm religious. And I notice that when I play racquetball with them, they swear less. They say, oops. Excuse me. But you see, the goal is not just to become an all-around nice guy. That's not the goal. Close doesn't count. Close doesn't count. We're not playing horseshoes. I'm reminded of that chilling passage in Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus, describing this very kind of thing, he says, you can be close enough to call me Lord. You can be close enough to tell others about me. You can even be close enough to affect some miracle in my name. But you see, close is not enough. Because he turns to those people and he says, Depart from me, you evildoer. Never did I know you. Close is not enough. You can have the knowledge. You can have some grasp. You can be a regular attender of church. You can be a good person. You could be close to the kingdom of God. But close is not enough. No cigar. We ain't playing horseshoes here. I want to clarify a little bit to you what it means to enter into the kingdom of God, enter into the family of God, not just be close to it. What it actually means to enter in. How does one do that? You don't do it just through knowledge alone, through good deeds or noble intentions. But the big word, here it is, here it comes. Here's the word, here's, the, here's how you enter in. Faith. By faith. Let me give you a, a contemporary word. Trusting. Trusting. You enter into the kingdom of God. You enter into a relationship with God by trusting. By trusting. 
What do you mean by that? Well, let me illustrate it by an old, an old story I heard. This story has always fascinated me, and it fits wonderfully here. Some, some, I heard this a few years ago, and, and the person who told it to me purported to me that it was a true story. I don't know how true it is, but it certainly is uh, an interesting uh, illustration. The story goes that many, many years ago, a cable was stretched from the United States side to the Canadian side across Niagara Falls. Somebody I see have heard the story. That somebody stretched a cable across the falls from the US side to the Canadian side. And a famous tightrope walker announced that he was going to walk across that cable from the American side to the Canadian side. And he was going to do so on a certain day. Well, on that day, hundreds and hundreds of people gathered on both sides uh, because this has been advertised, been in the newspaper, been on the news. You can imagine uh, lots and lots of curiosity seekers would gather to see if this fellow would actually even show up. Well, he showed up. And sure enough, according to his claim, at the appointed hour, he stepped out on that cable and he began to traverse the, the chasm on that cable very carefully, I imagine. Winds blowing, the, 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 the falls crashing beneath him, the spray certainly rising up. And here he is on this cable walking across to the Canadian side. Well, he went across, he made it. He turned around and he walked all the way back. And the people just were hysterical. They applauded and they were cheering and he, he did it and he smiled and they thought, well, this is it. This is the end of the show. And he says, nope. He took out a blindfold. He covered his eyes and he told the crowd, he says, do you think that I can do it blindfolded? Now, of course, what's the crowd going to say? They don't have anything to risk. Yeah, sure you can do it. Go for it. We want to see this one. Right? So he started. He started, he walked out on that cable blindfolded, all the way across, he made it. He got to the other side, he asked the other people on the other side. He says, do you think I can make it back? What do you think they said? Sure, go for it. <laughs> and so he made it back. He went all the way back. Took the blindfold off, got a wheelbarrow. He says, do you think I can push this wheelbarrow across? Sure, sure you can, go for it. He took the wheelbarrow, he pushed it all the way across, all the way back. He got back and he said, do you think I can push the wheelbarrow across? Blindfolded. Now by this time, the crowd was in a frenzy. They were incredibly amazed. This guy, and they're thinking, I'll push a, a wheelbarrow blindfolded. And they're shouting, they're saying, go for it. They're, each side now, by this time, has got a, you know, their own cheerleader. You know how somebody always emerges from the crowd and starts leading the cheers? Each side's got their cheerleader, and the cheerleader's saying, go for it, go for it, go for it. They want to see this guy cross the chasm, blindfolded, pushing a wheelbarrow. Then he turned to the crowd, and he said, before I go, he said, you are really confident that I'm going to make it, right? And they said, oh, go for it, yeah. He says, all right, now, I need a volunteer to get into the wheelbarrow. I'll push him across, and I'll push him all the way back. Step right up. 
What are we talking about here? Trust, aren't we? I mean, it's one thing to stand off and say, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Woo, that's great. I believe you can do it. It's a whole other thing to get into the wheelbarrow. That requires what? Trust. Trust. I'm going to trust this guy. It requires a certain amount of trust. I want you to keep that illustration in mind for just a second. You know, when the Bible talks about having a relationship with God, entering into his kingdom, having heaven as our destiny, the Bible always starts by telling us that man is separated from God. That man is separated from God. And we can, we can use this picture of these, of these two cliffs, if you will, with this cable and the illustration we just, we just looked at. We can use it as an example. You see, God is on one side of the chasm. Man is on the other side of the chasm, separated, and there's a cable connecting the two. You get the picture? There's a cable that goes across. Now, the reason that we're all over on this side is because the Bible says that all men have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Every man is a sinner. You see, this book is a book about relationships. It's a book about the restoration and the healing of relationships. God wants to restore the relationship that man had with him at one time. God wants to restore and heal man internally so he can have a relationship with himself. God wants to restore and heal the relationship between other men. Certainly our, our world needs that. And finally, God wants to bring a substantial measure of healing between man and his relationship with his environment. You see, all four of those relationships are, are terribly, terribly broken, terribly hurting. But God is in the healing and restoring business. But, but all those other relationships can't be affected significantly and substantially enough unless this relationship is restored. If you, and I know everyone can relate to this, if you're in a relationship with another person and you have offended that other person, isn't there distance now in that relationship? Doesn't there need, if, if, if both of you are significant to one another and there's distance in that relationship, doesn't there need to be some kind of reconciliation, some kind of healing to be brought about? Forgiveness? These are all concepts and terms and, and issues of reality that the Bible deals with. But the Bible will tell us that, that God is on, on this one side and all of mankind is on the other side because all mankind has sinned. All mankind has offended a holy God. Every single one of us are guilty. Which one of you kept the Ten Commandments perfectly today? Nobody. And if you didn't do it, you're guilty of violating God's law. In your need of forgiveness. Now, I need to say something here. God does not send people to hell. Some people say to me, well, you know, I can't believe in a God who'd send people to hell. He doesn't send, he's trying to rescue them from hell. He's trying to rescue them from hell. 
Every human being is born full of a disease called sin that automatically separates him from God, and every human being is born already headed to hell. God's saying, stop, stop, let me save you from that. If you take a, a little baby, a little baby is born, and that parent doesn't, doesn't take any, any intervention, doesn't move to intervene in that life, the life of that child, doesn't seek to train it up, doesn't seek to, to, seek to educate it or anything, no redemptive kind of activity in that baby's life as that child grows up. That child will grow up to be a psychopathic maniac, a homicidal fool, no limits in its life. But the parent must take intervention, inter interventive tactics in that child's life to train it up, to guide it, to save it from that kind of oblivion. That's automatically where a child is going. You ask any psychologist, a psychiatrist, sociologist, ask any police officer, and he'll tell you that people with those kinds of backgrounds are people that no one took the time to nurture them and to direct them and to save them from what lay in the future. The same thing is true of God. God's not mean in sending people to hell. God's trying to save people from hell. He's over here on this side of the chasm, and he's hollering over to the other side. There's a raging inferno coming. There's an earthquake coming, devastating. There's the fires coming. Tragedy is coming. And God is crying out. In his grace and his mercy, he says, I, I want to save you. I want you all to come across to this side. I don't want you to perish. But the only way that you can get across is, is my son Jesus is going to take a wheelbarrow. And one at a time, he's going to ask you to get in and, and trust him to take you all the way across the chasm. to come over to my side. And in 24 hours, I'm going to cut the cable. I'm going to cut the cable, and Jesus is going to come across with the wheelbarrow. Form a line. Form a line. And all of you who want to come, get in that wheelbarrow. 24 hours, you're not going to have another chance. It'll be all over. Form a line. What would happen? What would happen, do you suppose? Here we are, we're all on this other side. We hear the call. Let me tell you what I think will happen. It's five groups of people. The first group are the intellectuals. The intellectuals among us would get out our computers, calculators, graphs, <laughs> and we'd begin to try to figure out a way we're going to build a bridge. I ain't getting in that doggone wheelbarrow. There ain't no way we're going to figure out a way. We're smart enough. We're going to build a bridge to get across this chasm. That's the intellectuals. The second group are the aggressive self-starters. These are the ones who tear off their shirts, tear off their shoes, they go down, and they test the currents of the water to see if they can swim across before the currents rush them over the falls. 
they're not going to get in that wheelbarrow either. They're not going to trust Jesus. And then, of course, there's the hard-hearted ones who say, you know, I think God is bluffing. I think there's all kinds of ways to get across, and I don't really believe that there's a 24-hour limit. So I'm going to just go about my life and not worry about it. I think God is bluffing. And, of course, there's the, the hustlers, the wheeler dealers. These are the guys, these are the types that are always are looking for an angle, always looking for a way. They're the ones who are going to be out trying to charter a helicopter. And then lastly, there are the timid types. They're the timid types. They're going, oh, no, I, I can't get in the wheelbarrow. I don't know what I'm going to do. They're hiding in the bushes, chewing on their fingernails, scared out of their wits. The timid types. And all the time, Jesus is standing there saying, just form a line. Just form a line. Trust me. Just trust me. I'll take you across. I'll take you across. And all the time, time's ticking away. It's getting later and later and later. Pretty soon, someone decides to try Jesus. Someone steps forward out of the crowd and says, you know, I got nothing to lose, really. I mean, the fire's coming. Somebody is going to be the first one. They're going to come up. They're going to look in his eyes. They're going to see his love. They're going to look at his hands. They're going to look at his feet. They're going to see the calluses and the wounds. And that person is going to climb into the wheelbarrow. Can you imagine the hush of the crowd as they stand back and they watch that first person get in that wheelbarrow? He's going to get in that wheelbarrow. He's going to say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. You're my only hope. Take me across. Take me across. And Jesus would turn that wheelbarrow around, and that person would be white-knuckling it all the way across. <laughs> Can you dig it? <laughs> Man, that person is going to be scared woo, out of his mind. Trusting is so hard.